Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Wow! Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You've got some goal, Michael. Goal? What does that mean? Um, not too sure. Welcome everybody to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. I'm Dr. Mike. I'm joined here with Dr. Matt and he just said I've got a lot of gall. Do you know what gall means? Um, bile? Yeah, it means bile. So why would they say you've got a lot of gall, buddy? You've got a lot of bile, buddy. It was one of the humors back in the day of the Greeks. What are the humors? What, all four? Yeah. There's <laughs> uh, bile, there's... Don't we need to know this to teach medical uh, science? No, not anymore. Not anymore? All right, can you tell me them? No, I don't know what they are, but we know that bile is one of them. And if you had too much bile, Hippocrates or one of the ancient Greek physicians would state that it means you're aggressive. So they'd probably just fit in for you. drain some fluids from your body just so you feel better or weak. If you're weak, you can't be aggressive. So Okay. So that's a good start, isn't it? Yeah, wonderful. So this gall that we talk talk about, where is it held? Well, we're referring specifically to the gallbladder. Brilliant. And the gallbladder sits underneath the liver, which it, sits where? And it's not, what's its me- medical name? Uh, what's its anatomical? Cholecysto. Okay. So coli. Meaning gall. And cyst. Uh, bladder or pouch. Perfect. So cholecysto, so you've got cholecystitis. That'd be inflammation. Of the gallbladder. Yeah. Of the gallbladder. Because if, if you just had cystitis, that's urinary bladder. Okay. So that's the, that's the first and only cyst. But if you've got a prefix like coli, it's saying the gallbladder. Okay. And so if Sounds about right. you get it removed, it's a cholecystectomy. Okay. What if a cholecystotomy? Can you have that? Like put a hole in it. 
cut it. <laughs> Actually, I think they used to do that um, before they removed it because they thought that the gallbladder was very important. You better ke- keep it there. And to pull the stones out when they started to realize there could be stones that, and what's that called? Cholelithiasis? Yeah. Um, I think they put fistulas, so connections probably from the gallbladder into your intestines so the the stones could just drain. Okay, so they did cut it and pull the stones out. Yeah, and then they now remove it. Mm. Mm. All right. Well, let's let's so if we're going to talk about the gallbladder from the beginning, we might as well start at the beginning. And the beginning is everybody's favorite, and this is probably when I'm going to look at the stats and see that everyone turns off. Uh, two minutes. 40. Everyone's favorite what? Embryology. Yeah, I don't know. There's a huge crowd outside. Sorry, they didn't hear embryology. They heard Dr. Mike and now embryology. So, all right, if we need to talk about the embryology of the gallbladder, where do we begin? I won't bore you too, too long on this. All right, you've got 30 seconds. All right, 20, 20 days after fertilization, um, you've got the starting points of the gut tube. Uh, a big part of it is still the yolk sac that sticks out the front. That was our original name, gut tube and yolk sac. Gut tube and yolk sac's medical podcast. Okay, um, I didn't really find that funny. Um, <laughs> it's because you're yolk sack. <laughs> so the the front, so this would be the belly side of the embryo. Right. Um, the yolk sac's kind of pointing outwards, like a big bulge, like towards the belly um, button. And as the embryo kind of folds um, longitudinally, so it's kind of head and tail folds in on each other. Yeah, a lot of the yolk sac gets sucked back into the um, what's going to be the intestines. Wow. Now, this is still early days, like four weeks into it, so not much, not not that far along. Where's uh, the gallbladder? Yeah, I'm going to get to that. <laughs> so, um, once the gut tube starts to develop, we break it into three parts, the foregut, the midgut, and the hindgut. Okay? So, starting at the foregut, so this is basically between the mouth all the way down to um, kind of halfway into the duodenum. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, the first part of the small intestine. Yeah. So the stomach will start to bulge. This is part of the foregut. will start to bulge out, and that gives you the, the greater curvature of the stomach, and then it'll do a bit of rotation. But just below it, you get a out pouching that will go ventrally, like a, a letter Y. Okay? okay. Is this you said under the stomach, but above the duodenum? Well, this will be in the duodenum. Oh, so gotcha. this out pouch. So it's like a herniation comes out of the tube. Yeah. On the ventral surface. So the belly. Yep. And of the tube, and it will point out like a, a Y. Yep. Okay, so... the Like le- a fork. Like a fork, out. yeah. Yep. So the, the most superior part of the fork will start to go up towards the heart. Now, at the same time as this is happening, you've got a, a, a whole lot of tissue that's coming from the neck called the septum transversum that comes down the front of the body, wraps up the heart, and then kind of comes under the heart. This Does it wrap this, this is gonna top be the- of the fork? Uh, wait a second. Ooh. This is going to be the future diaphragm. Okay. Ah. So the top of the fork is going to be the liver or the future liver. Gotcha. And the liver starts to grow into the diaphragm or the septum transversum. Ah. And then you have all this mesenchymal tissue, stromal tissue, and then a whole lot of blood vessels that grow into that liver tissue. And that gives you essentially the liver. So in anatomy, we know that the diaphragm sits immediately superior to the liver. You're saying that there is significant attachment of the liver to the diaphragm? Yeah, so the central central tendon of the diaphragm, which is not muscular, that's essentially uh, continuous with the liver. And that's where, you know, you have that thing of 
known as the bare area of the liver, which is hasn't got peritoneum on it because it's kind of in direct contact with the diaphragm. Wow. So every time you breathe and diaphragm moves and contracts, it will move the liver. So somewhat probably. I mean liver's it, pretty big. I around suppose. the outside of it is the muscle part which will be doing the movement. Yeah. And now what's the bottom of the fork? And so just just so you know, the certain transversums come from the neck, so it pulls them the nerve with it. Ah. And what's the nerve that does the diaphragm? Phrenic? Yeah, three four three four five. Yep. And so a lot, of the, a lot of the liver will be innervated by the phrenic. Really? Yeah, yeah. And so that's why sometimes you get referred pain up to your shoulder. So if you have some sort of liver disease? You could get, yeah, could shoulder get referral shoulder or scapular referral. As though you've, oh, that's interesting. Mm. So clinically, that's very important. Yep. Where is the gallbladder? So the bottom part of the fork, so the inferior part of the fork, will also bulge off and that will be the precursors of the gallbladder. And as the gallbladder starts to stretch away from that initial fork, it will stretch the tube with it, which will be the cystic duct. And then the one that went up to the liver will be the common hepatic duct. And then together they'll form, well, they haven't really formed, they just went apart from each other. Where they've joined is going to be the bile duct. So wait a minute. So this is sort of like, tell me if this analogy is apt. If a tree were to... Branch off two branches. Yeah, this is but then good. but then at one point the two branches come back together again. Yeah, the to trunk. connect. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. So they come back together. No, no. So I'm playing with Michael's fingers fingers <laughs> now. So this is the superior. So the top part of the the branch yeah. is go, that's a gonna the be liver. liver. Yeah. This is gonna be the gallbladder. That's right. And when they where they've come from, their origin yeah. will be the bile duct. Ah, so where the two forks originally forked out that is the connection yep. of the common bile duct. Yep. But because and they're all growing a long distance away, yeah. they'd stretch those tubes with gotcha. it. Gotcha. And so the, so the tube coming from the liver is going to be the hepatic duct and then the other one's going to be the cystic duct. And then yep. when they come together, it's the common bile duct. Yeah. And because you said these are out pockets from the duodenum, they all connect into the duodenum. Correct. Great. That's right. Now, just to confuse, well, it's not really confuse, just to make it a touch more complex. Yeah. Um, if you do the inferior portion of your Y, yep. the lower part. Fork. Let's say fork. The fork. Yep. The lower margin of it of it, where the just just above the origin, yep. where the liver would come off as well. There's another out pouch there, mm. which is the ventral pancreas. The ventral pancreas. Yep. Wait a minute. That you're saying this as though we have more than one pancreas. Yeah. Well we do it embryology. So yeah. Immediately off the back of the same duodenal tube where yeah. that Y went off, yeah. immediately off the dorsal side of it is the um, dorsal pancreas, which is the majority. So if we were to refer to an adult pancreas now as having a base and a tail, is that how you look at it? Or Yeah, so the uncanunc process. Excuse me? Uncanunc? Uncanunc. I can't pronounce it. U-N-C... How do you pronounce it? I don't U, know. You spell it for me. U U N C I N A T E. Uncanate. Uncanate. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to be the ventral portion that developed, and the rest of the of the pancreas, like the body, the tail, and probably the superior head, came off the dorsal side. So, do they have variable functions? Well, we get to this. So, where they're they're separate, right? Yeah. And so the 
ventral portion spins around. You're talking about of the pancreas now? Of the pancreas. Yeah. Spin, because this is the stomach rotating, it spins it around and joins the bottom part of the dorsal pancreas. And remember, the front pancreas, the ventral pancreas, which has kind of come off with the gallbladder, Yeah. right? It's got a, the same tube with it, which is going to be the common bile duct, right? Gotcha. As it spins around, it's going to bring that bile duct with it. And so this is why we have this common bile duct that has this kind of strange trajectory from an anterior and then it goes behind the duodenum and behind the pancreas and then comes into where it exits into the duodenum. Uh, so let me, let me just uh, make this clear for everybody who's now listening. We have a duodenum, which is the first part of the small intestines, and it's C-shaped. Coming out of this C-shaped portion of the duodenum is a tube which branches off one part of the branch. Well, no, there's is a particular tube that comes out, right? That, branch, that tube branches off and goes to the gallbladder but also goes to the liver. In addition to that, there's another branch that comes off which goes to the pancreas. Yep. So what this means is whatever gets released from the liver, the gallbladder, and the pancreas all basically merge into one particular tube that then gets leaked out into the duodenum. Correct. All right. Good job with the embryology. So it's, it's it was more interesting than most times we discuss com- embryology. It's complex, but with everything in embryology, you have to kind of look at it. It's very hard to explain. It's visual. With it's a that. visual. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So that's why we we spoke about it for eight minutes. Yeah. <laughs> that's how long it went. Wow. Yeah. As opposed to thirty I was, seconds. I was really hoping not to talk that. Look, you did a good job for once, and and I'm proud of you for once. Oh wow. Yeah. Doesn't mean it's going to be a good episode. Okay. So we've done our little brief overview and the embryology and why it's important. So the importance of this, apart from so people have a background, because you were saying that the liver has some parts of the phrenic nerve because of the the origin of the diaphragm being yeah. pulled down from the neck. Does that mean the gallbladder also yeah. is innervated by the phrenic nerve in some parts or well, branches The gallbladder off? is actually innervated by three to four nerves. So the vagus is one important one that we need yeah. to know because we'll be talking about that shortly. So that's going to be um, visceral motor but also afferent. Yep. Also sympathetic, afferent and efferent. Yep. And also phrenic, which is probably going to be partially sensory or afferent. And the most important one I think to focus on for this little podcast about the gallbladder, probably the efferent version of the vagus nerve. Yeah. Do you agree? Well, sympathetic also because it's going to oppose whatever the parasympathetic does. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's fair. All right. But when we talk about the activity of the gallbladder, we're going yeah. to be focusing on the vagus. Yep. All right. Now, I think we should talk about some of the basic functions. Just brief overview of the functions so everyone's aware of what the gallbladder Should does. Should we just do the basic anatomy first? No, I think let's just oh. do what it does and then we'll jump back to the anatomy. Okay. So two major functions of the gallbladder. One is that it houses bile, which is like a detergent that is used to help digest fats and absorb fats. And the second function is that the bile is one way of being able to excrete lipid-soluble substances. So basically dispose of things in our fecal material. So they're the two functions of the gallbladder, done and dusted. And that's what we're going to focus on for today's lecture. But first, we should talk about the anatomy. Okay. Would, you be, would it be fair to say that it's basically receiving the exocrine products from the liver? Uh, yeah, it would be. And just, I, just, yeah. just a stall. Well, it would have to be. Okay. Have to. Because, uh, we'll talk about its components shortly. 
But let's first talk about what it looks like and where it's located. So everyone has a, a little picture in their mind when we start talking about the release and storage of bile. So I've got here um, Mike's liver. Yeah, can everyone see it? <laughs> when I said that, I mean it, Mike's liver from the lab. Ah, uh, yes. So Matt's holding a little model of the liver. It's actually quite big, really. It's yeah, well, the liver is about, what, four kilos? It's pretty big. That would be close to... Your liver after a couple of drinks. Okay. So Mike's currently looking at the anterior surface of the of the liver. Yep. The l- 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 liver. If you look at the the inferior margin of the liver that I'm holding, yeah, you can see the, the, bottom of it. the bottom part of the gallbladder popping out. Yeah, you're right. So what it looks like to me, so Matt's holding the liver, so I'm looking at the front, like you said. It just looks like a big brown... Triangle? <laughs> triangle. Yeah. But at the very bottom of it, uh, I can see just poking out from behind is the bottom of the gallbladder. Yep. And that's yeah. called the fundus. So when you look at the gallbladder, it's broken into three parts. Okay. So we've got the fundus, which is the widest part, the body, and the neck. The gallbladder, I mean... It's shaped like a pear. Okay. Its length is 7 to 10 centimetres. All right. And its width is about 4 centimetres. So it's sort of between the size of a plum and a pear. Yeah, but it's shaped like a pear. Okay. It sits like in a flask. Okay. It sits with... <laughs> it sits this is what I get all the time, people, is that Matt just is so dismissive. Might as well do the podcast by himself. <laughs> Dr. Matt's medical podcast. Oh, it sounds pretty good, actually. It sits in its own fossa of the back of the liver. So fossa is a little indented, yep. cut-out area. Um, it's mostly covered with um, visceral peritoneum. Yep. Okay. Which is probably continuous with that that's wrapping the liver as well. Mm. So that that's just connective tissue of organs. Yeah. Yeah. It has it's kind of in the region of the fifth and the sixth surgical part of the liver. Now that's getting technical, I'm not going to explain that. But it's kind of on a Glad you said it. <laughs> just for the anatomists out there, they just want to know where it is. Yes. Um, for the three listening. So the the liver can be broken into surgical regions, but it all can also can just be broken into four kind of anatomical regions. All right. And it's kind of on a junction between the left and the right. Now, where's the liver? On the right or left-hand side of our abdomen? The right. Up so top? Hypo- hypochondriac. Right. So, it's in the, so the majority of it's in the right hypochondriac and epigastric yeah. region yep. with the top of the liver surface basically in line and continuous with the diaphragm. Yep. And then underneath the liver, towards the back, is the gallbladder. Yep. All right. And it's flush shaped, about 7 to 10 centimetres. So it's shaped like a pear. What else? Um, so, that, as I said, there's three parts. The fundus is what hangs down below the, the inferior margin of the liver. Yeah. Okay. That potentially could be, if it's inflamed, mm. could be palpated around the ninth um, costal cartilage kind of margin. So, okay. if you were to press in... The, as you, the on the right hand side, yeah. As you pressed your fingers in towards the anterior abdominal wall, yep. The parietal peritoneum would touch it, and that would elicit pain. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But the body and the neck of it is tucked up behind the liver, so you wouldn't be able to palpate that. Gotcha. On any normal person, you wouldn't be able to palpate. But if it was inflamed and enlarged, you possibly could elicit uh, a pain sensation by pushing in that ninth costal cartilage region. All right. Now, do you know how much the gallbladder can hold? If it's a little pouch, how much can it hold? 50 mils. Yeah, about 50 mils. But I think... A uh, shot glass. Yeah, between 25 to 50 mils. Um, obviously, in certain scenarios, it can hold up to 100 mils. 
but on average, it's about 50 mils worth of contents. Yep. Contents we call bile. Um, a few other things. Uh, the body of the gallbladder is yeah. in contact with both the duodenum, the superior duodenum. So I'll show you this model again, Michael. Yeah. So you can see this is the superior duodenum. It's kind of touching the back of that. So if you were to look at a cadaveric model, so a human body in the cadaver, you may actually see in the superior duodenum a discoloring from the bile of all the years of where the gallbladder rests on it. Wow. Also, the transverse colon is in contact with it as well. Is that discolored? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. However... We'll go in the labs after this and take a look. However, just out of interest since we're talking about these two surface um, connections, if there is significant inflammation and possible stones, it can cause fistulas from the gallbladder into the duodenum. Really? Or the transverse colon. And would that be coming from the gallbladder to the duodenum or from the duodenum to the gallbladder? The former. And so you can start dropping, it can start dropping stones straight into the duodenum or the transverse colon. Wouldn't that be better? Wouldn't that be an easier way of uh, disposing of your stones? Then yeah, maybe, but then you might uh, run risk the risk of peritonitis. Yeah. yeah. All right. So are you happy with how you've defined the anatomy? Well, or is happy possibly overstating? you should ask the listeners. <laughs> All right, give us your feedback. Are you happy with the way Matt explains our anatomy? And then finally, I just got to the last third part, which is yeah. the neck, which kind of goes back up and then is in continuous with the cystic duct, which then joins the hepatic duct okay. from the liver. All right. And, and that's the three regions. And what about its blood supply? Uh, well, it's, arterially, it's going to get a branch off the, the celiac branch. Yep. which Celiac is trunk from the aorta. Which is kind of the first branch of the abdominal aorta. There's a branch that goes up on the common hepatic and you'll get a branch off that, which is usually the cystic artery. Yep. But I must say that the arterial um, supply with vessels and also all the biliary ductal system is quite varied. Yeah, it so, seems like it's... And so from, if you're going to be a surgeon or you're working in a surgical context and you were doing removals of the gallbladder or working in a space, there's going to be a huge variability. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I read that uh, the biliary tree, which is all those ducts coming from the liver and the gallbladder going to the duodenum, I think um, there's 20% of people have variations yeah. in that tree. So like you said, if you're going to be a general surgeon and you're going to be doing these cholecystectomies, you need to be aware of the variation. Yep. All right, should we move on? Yep. Now, should we talk about the constituents of bile and what it is, what's in it, why does it go to the gallbladder, why doesn't it just come from the liver? What sure. do you think? Yeah, yeah. All right, so the first thing is that the liver produces a substance called bile mm -hmm. and the gallbladder stores and concentrates that bile. Okay. Now, what that bile is, is an accumulation of various components. 95, a bit more than 95% of it is just water, but the rest of it are the following. Bile acids and bile salts, bilirubin, phospholipids, immunoglobulin A, cholesterol, and ions, predominantly sodium, potassium, chloride, bit of calcium, and bicarbonate. Yeah. So they're the major components. Now, there's obviously other things like proteins, amino acids. Um, and so does it mean bile salt? So you said 95% water. Yeah. And then bile salts. Bile, bile acids, bile salts. 
Does that mean they're made up of a whole lot of stuff? Bile acids and bile salts are made from cholesterol. Yeah. And cholesterol is a major component within bile. Everyone must remember that because it's going to play an important role shortly. Okay. Um, but a, we'll talk about that in a sec. All right. Yeah. Now, an important thing is that, like I said, the liver produces this bile. And the liver produces a watery or dilute bile, which then goes to the gallbladder and the gallbladder stores it and concentrates it. Now, what happens is the gallbladder will store bile from the liver in times of fasting or between meals. And so if you're eating a meal, you get these particular stimulations from the gut or from the small intestines that trigger the gallbladder and the liver to release bile. But when you're not eating that bile's continuously being made from the liver and storing in the gallbladder. Okay. And around about fo- uh, 900 mils per day of bile is being produced and yep. about half is stored in the gallbladder. Wow. Yeah, about 450 mils stored in the gallbladder. So you're saying if when you eat or you've just eaten, the, stim- the stimulus that's coming from your intestines or nerves go up to the gallbladder but also the liver. Yeah. So it encourages the liver to make more bile. That's right. And what happens is that the liver and the gallbladder will release their bile simultaneously into the duodenum. Okay. Now, this is an important thing. So, when, so the bile that's produced by the liver is isotonic with plasma, blood plasma. So that means it's the same concentration. So if I were to take your blood yeah. and measure how many things are in it per volume, the concentration is what we call 300 milliosmoles. Okay. So that's how much sodium, potassium, proteins, things floating around in there. Dissolved in it. Is dissolved in it. If you were to take bile, even though it's got bile salts and cholesterol and bilirubin and proteins and all these things, it is also 300 milliosmoles when it's coming from the liver. That's awesome. Now, this is a cool thing. Is there a reason for that? Are you going to say it? When it goes to the gallbladder to get concentrated, yeah. it becomes so a lot of water gets pulled out and a number of ions like sodium and so forth get pulled out as well. It becomes 20 times more concentrated. Most of these constituents become 20 times more concentrated in the oh, gallbladder. 20. I had 10. Uh, no, up to 20, 20 to 30. Wow. But yeah, between in humans. 10th, in humans, right? But it's still isotonic with blood plasma. Explain that. Radio silence. Can't. Okay, this is why. And don't call yourself that. What happens is when we have the bile acids... And we haven't spoken about how they're produced, but bile acids are what we call amphipathic. So it means that now it means that one part of them loves water, one part of them hates water. Now, when they become concentrated in the gallbladder, they spontaneously come together with phospholipids to form something similar to the phospholipid bilayer of cells, right? It forms this continuous little ring with all the fatty hydrophobic parts facing the insides and all the hydrophilic parts facing the outsides. And this is bile acids and bile salts mixed with phospholipids creating this thing, right? What's it called? It's called a mycel or miseal. I thought it was Michelle. No, it's definitely not that. But the thing is this, when we look at concentrations, it's how many particles in the volume, not the individual things. So a missile, for example, comprised of a thousand bile acids and phospholipids is is no different to a single mm. bile acid. So even though it becomes more concentrated, they come together. Does that make sense? That's great. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah, it is. All right. Now, I think when we talk about this bile, we should focus on the importance of cholesterol and bile acids and bile salts. What do you reckon? Yep. Okay, you ready to take this journey with me? Sure. Okay. 
Matt stands up, walks can out I, the door. Can I just say one thing and then I'll let you run wild? <laughs> so when you look at the liver, what are the repeating units that's kind of within the liver? Hepatocytes. Well, that's the cells, but the lobules. Of, the lobules, yeah. They're kind of hexagonal. <laughs> <laughs> hexagonal is the yeah, term that people, yeah. that human beings use. And so um, within the middle of the hexagon is a central vein. Yeah. And that gets blood that drains towards it from the outside of the hexagon. Yep. And w- the blood that that receives is from the portal vein and the hepatic artery. All right. So two-thirds um, venous blood, which is from your gut, and one-third arterial blood. Okay. And that percolates through all your hepatocytes towards the central vein, which I guess ultimately ends up in your inferior vena cava. Cool. Makes sense so far? Makes sense. Now, going the opposite way is all the waste products from the hepatocytes. You're talking about in these lobules? In these lobules. Yeah. And this is So going- coming into a lobule are two vessels. Yep. Portal and arterial. But draining coming towards, out of draining the- towards the middle of the hexagon. Yeah. But going the opposite way, so yep. flowing against the tide, let's say. Okay. Is your bile. Right. And so this bile in it, in each hexagon drains through what we call a bile canaculi. Yeah. Okay. Into what we call an interlobular biliary duct. Mm which then goes into a collecting biliary duct, yeah. which then, depending on which side of your liver you're on, if it's the right side, it becomes the right hepatic duct, yeah. and then the left side, the left hepatic duct, they join together and become the common hepatic duct. And then if you go kind of four centimeters distally, then it joins the cystic duct, right. which is from the gallbladder. Mm. Gotcha. Okay, so you, what you're saying is, the liver gets a whole bunch of blood. Yep. Some deoxygenated, some oxygenated, some with nutrients, some without nutrients, some with waste products, some without waste products, and they're coming in so they can be detoxified or stored or played around with. But coming in the opposite direction is bile that's just being produced. So coming into the hepatocytes is blood and nutrients and yep. waste. Yep. Coming out is newly produced bile from yep. the hepatocytes. Or it's waste products. That's draining into the can- canaliculi. Yep. And that then goes into bile ducts. Bigger, bigger, bigger ducts until yep. it leaves the liver as a whole in the right and left hepatic duct, joins a common common hepatic duct, yep. and then it joins four centimeters later the cystic duct. Gotcha. So it can go from the liver through those ducts into the gallbladder for storage, or it can go from the liver straight away yep. down into the duodenum. And if you want to be technical, just to finish it off, and then you can take over. Like um, that wasn't. <laughs> as those two come together, the cystic duct, and the common uh, common hepatic duct, yep. it becomes the common bile duct, which then goes... And that's got three parts to it. A supraduodenal part, a retroduodenal part, and a paraduodenal part. Yeah, I don't... Yeah, so wait. All right. The last part wraps around the back of the pancreas and yep. joins the main pancreatic duct. All right. So the main, the main pancreatic duct has its own sphincter. So does the common bile duct. And then the two together that come together which is now called an ampulla, yeah. they have their own sphincter. Not ampulla? Or ampulla. Uh, their own sphincter. Yeah. And sometimes collectively they call that the sphincter of Odi. Now, so what's the difference between the sphincter of Odi and the uh, sphincter of Veda? I don't Veda. know. I think it's the ampulla of Veda. Uh, ampulla of Veda. Yeah, that's but the, the sphincter of Odi is what contracts and relaxes. I believe so. But and I think the that's the collective is, of the three. And the ampulla is just a an area where it all yeah, comes together. that's right. And so when you're not eating, those sphincters are closed, which means all the bile that's come down backs back up 
and then starts to fill up the cystic, goes up the cystic duct into the gallbladder and then starts to fill up. So this biliary system is a two-way street. Yeah. Things go down into the duodenum, but things also go back up into the gallbladder. And that's why when you're not eating and that that, um, sphincter is closed, the gallbladder starts to fill. That's right. Brilliant. All right. But interestingly... So these Mike are two is, points now. Mike is rolling his eyes at me. Yeah. Um, there's special, additional special sphincters or valves, let's say, in the, the neck of the, of the gallbladder, which means if you cough or you put a lot of intra-abdominal pressure in, it will stop the gallbladder just releasing a, a huge load of um, bile. Oh. Wait, so, so are you saying that if I eat an extremely fatty meal... And I don't want enough. <laughs> I don't want a lot of bile being released. I just cough while I eat. I don't know, actually. <laughs> it might be because. By of the, the way, this is not a recommendation. This, I, this is me being a silly human being. I don't think that happens. Hmm. But I mean, maybe it could happen. Firstly, you need the bile. Well, you don't need the bile, but the bile is extremely useful. So bile isn't required for fat digestion and absorption. It's just helpful. Yeah, you agree? And, yeah, and it, just for all these like convoluted pipes, they're actually quite complex. Absolutely. With a lot of valves and sphincters and all sorts of things. I know, I know. Okay, you... Is take, it my turn now? You take over. Oh, thank you, our generous one. So now I'm going to talk about bile. And I spoke about its components. Now I want to talk about how we produce the bile acids and bile salts and what the difference is. First thing you need to understand is the liver is going to be the place where all the cholesterol comes in. Right now, the liver can gain, gather cholesterol a couple of different ways. One, it can synthesize its own cholesterol from acetyl-CoA, or it can take cholesterol from our diet via these chylomicrons, which we'll talk about in another podcast. We probably already have. I think we have. So basically, when you eat fatty foods and your digestive system breaks it all down, it gets absorbed in the lymphatic system, then the bloodstream, and then the cholesterol gets repackaged and gets taken back to the liver where the liver deals with it. So now we've got cholesterol in the liver. The liver is going to change that cholesterol ever so slightly to produce two important things called acids, but the cholesterol is turned into something called cholic acid and something called kenodeoxycholic acid. These are the two types of acids that are produced from cholesterol. Now, you're right so far? Just with the cholesterol, is that just a generic term or is Cholesterol, just cholesterol. Cholesterol is cholesterol. Okay. Yeah, it's a sterol. So sterol so when, is the umbrella term, but it is a cholesterol. So when people... Cholesterol. When people talk about their cholesterol levels, that's generally not true, is it? As cholesterol, it's a whole lot of different lipid um, parameters in your blood. Yes. But when we refer to cholesterol technically... Yep, this is what we're referring to. Okay, all right. Yep. So we've got cholic acid and kinodeoxycholic acid made from cholesterol. These are what we call primary bile acids. Mm-hmm. Now, these primary bile acids can get released from the liver and transit into the small intestines or, or I should say, and can be, so as it moves through, right? Let's just, okay, let's just first take the first part. These primary bile acids are now released into the small intestines. They're floating through the small intestines until they get to the very end of the small intestines, the most terminal end, the distal end, just before the ileum. Okay. And here we have some bacteria. Now, bacteria can do a couple of different things. Bacteria can turn these primary bile acids into secondary bile acids. And the secondary bile acids are, if it's cholic acid, it turns it into 
deoxycholic acid. So does it remove an oxygen? Yeah. And if it's kenodeoxycholic acid, it turns it into lithocholic acid. Okay. Now what happens here is that these secondary bile acids don't continue its transit through into our fecal material, but get reabsorbed through the epithelia of the distal small intestines into the bloodstream, and it's the portal system, what you spoke about earlier, and the portal system goes straight back to the liver. Okay. So it goes from liver, small intestines, portal system back to the liver. So this is a circulation, and this is what we call the enterohepatic circulation. Now, I haven't spoken about any functions yet. So if you had an issue with your gut, like if you had to have portions of your small intestine removed, Mm. would this pose a problem? I would think so, yes. Now, we've now taken these secondary bile acids, thrown them back to the liver via the portal system. These secondary bile acids get changed. Now, these are unconjugated secondary bile acids. We want to conjugate them because this has the most functional activity for us. We conjugate them with amino acids. And what we do is we can take, for example, deoxycholic acid and we can give it glycine. We just snap some glycine onto it. Now, if we do that, what we've got is now these new bile salts. Bile salts now. You can either call them conjugated bile acids or you can call them bile salts. Now, you can also take deoxycholic acid and lithocholic acid and give it taurine. So the two major amino acids that are conjugated to these bile acids are glycine and taurine and now they become bile salts and the importance of this is that they're now very strongly amphipathic meaning the amino acids glycine or taurine is negatively charged and loves water well i shouldn't say negatively charged but they love water Mm. so they're hydrophilic and the rest of the altered cholesterol portion the bile acid is hydrophobic and now it plays a really really powerful role as a detergent Okay, so um, to slightly reiterate, when you spoke earlier about that bile is ninety five percent water, yeah, and then bile acids slash salts. What percentage would that was that bile acid salts? S- small, like obviously two, less than five percent, two three percent, probably. So does that mean it's a combination of primary and secondary? Correct. Okay, and okay, so this is this is an important point, right? So now we've got the conjugated. Conjugated bile acids with their amino acids. They get released from the liver again into the small intestines. Again, all of this can be accumulating in the gallbladder at the same time. Okay, But we're just talking about these bile acids, bile salts. So they're released now into the small intestines and they play a very strong role by creating these mycelles or mycelles with other phospholipids like phosphatidylserine, for example. uh, Phosphatidylcholine, sorry. And they create these mycelles, which like I said, have the hydrophobic portion and the hydrophilic portion where the hydrophobic portion faces the inside, hydrophilic portion faces the outside and the cholesterol that's in the liver and the cholesterol that's accumulating in the gallbladder sits inside of these mycelles. So it's one way of being able to um, take this cholesterol away from it affecting any other part of the liver or gallbladder and one way of carrying it, all right? But at the same time, when you eat or ingest huge amounts of fat, just had a big fatty burger, for example, just like putting oil in a pan, all that oil comes together. It forms a big globule. Same thing happens in our diet. By the, when we eat proteins, fats, and carbs, the three macronutrients, carbs get broken down in our mouth, protein gets broken down in our stomach, but fat hasn't been broken down yet until the small intestines. This then triggers the liver and gallbladder to release the bile. And that comes in in this form of mycelles and mycelles, which encapsulate 
parts of the big fatty globule into smaller, more manageable pieces. And at the same time, the pancreas, which we know now is connected to the small intestines through these tubes. And there's two parts. And there's two parts which we don't care about at the moment. <laughs> will release enzymes that are like molecular scissors that continue to chop the fats down. So we need two things. We need the bile acids or conjugated bile acids as bile salts to form mycelles, which then wrap up smaller portions of this fat. They also allow for activation of the lipases or the fatty ends, the enzymes that break down fat from the pancreas to allow us to chop the fat down. And now we've got our triglycerides, monoglycerides, and glycerols encapsulated by these mycelles, which also help the absorption in from, from the lumen or hollow inside of the small intestines through the epithelia into the lymphatic system. <sighs> Wonderful. Last point about bile acids and bile salts is the conjugated bile acids with their little taurine and glycine components to them cannot be absorbed back through the portal system. So the bacteria will also chop the amino acids off so they can be reabsorbed. Do they use it, the amino acids? We probably do. But basically, that means that we... Very helpful bacteria, aren't they? Very helpful. We constantly Because of the bacteria, we constantly recycle our primary and secondary bile acids. And 95% of our bile acids are just recycled over and over and over again. We probably use the same. I think we do this about six or seven times throughout the day, recycle our bile acids. And only a small portion gets excreted in Wait, our fecal so material. whereabouts do the secondary get chopped up? Oh, so... Like in the lower? So I simplified like it. The large intestine? No. Or so, still in the small intestine? No. So basically, the primary acids, bile acids, turn in, t- will turn into secondary bile acids in the liver and then get conjugated when they come back through or they get conjugated at the same time in the liver. I know, but when you said that um, the secondary with the amino acids get, yeah. get chopped off, yeah, where does that occur in the intestines? Oh, at the same portion, the terminal portion of the small oh, okay. intestines. Yep. And so we continue to recycle. Now, this is one way of recycling our bile. And that just puts it back into a primary form. No, it can stay as secondary. Okay. So you can have primaries and secondaries cycling through like this. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Uh, they, they have different hydrophobicities, the primaries to the secondaries. Pretty cool. Very cool. So that's bile acids and bile salts. So once it's conjugated to the amino acid, it's a bile salt. Like I said, we've got phospholipids, which have to be incorporated into the mycelles so that we can digest and absorb the fat. We've got cholesterol, which is embedded inside of these mycelles as well, so it can be absorbed and utilized. We've got bilirubin, which is a breakdown product of red blood cells. And this is one way of being able to get rid of these breakdown products is through our bile and through excretion. It's the reason why our poo is brown because of the red dead blood cells. We've also got IgA, which is immunoglobulin A. And why do you think we have IgA in our bile? Well, that's there for an immune function. Correct. But you wouldn't really think there would be... Well, if you've got a lot of bile accumulating, if you've got some intestinal contents accumulating in one area, what do you not want to happen? What else could accumulate if it's your gut? Bacteria. So anytime you've got an area of stasis or non-movement in your gut, it gives bacteria an opportunity to continue to grow and divide and create an overgrowth. This is one reason why if people have diverticuli, which are pockets, out pockets in the colon, Mm. If they have diverticuli, it means that fecal material and bacteria 
can sit in one area without it being affected by the transit of bowel movements and create an overgrowth and too much bacteria leads to inflammation. And so the IgA is there so that we don't get an overgrowth of bacteria in our gallbladder. Or the biliary ductal system. Or the bil- biliary, duct- yeah, biliary ductal system. Okay. Now, in order for the gallbladder to contract and for the liver to release bile, it has to receive a stimulus. And we said that fatty food was the stimulus, but we haven't spoken specifically about how fatty food tells the gallbladder to contract and the liver to release bile. Go for it. All right, you want me to go for it? Yep. Okay, in the small intestines, there are a certain type of cells called enteroendocrine cells. And basically, entero meaning gut, endocrine meaning hormones, once they notice that there's some fat coming through, they release a hormone called CCK. Do you know what that stands for? Cholecyst. Yeah. Kynan. And what do you, so we spoke about cholecyst, right? Gallbladder. Yeah. And kynan means? Movement. Yeah, movement or contraction. And so. Kinetic. Yeah, kinetic. So CCK is named after what it does. And what it does is it tells the gallbladder to contract and release that bile. So would this be paracrine? So. Or or does it go into blood? So more, okay. So because it's endocrine, it does go into the bloodstream and move its way through, right? Portal system and so forth. But here's another thing. More evidence is coming out to say that CCK probably doesn't work that way and probably affects the efferents, sorry, the afferents coming from the small intestines, going to the brain and then affect the efferents coming out via the vagus. So we think that CCK is affecting the vagal afferents then coming out and affecting the vagal efferents to then tell the gallbladder to contract via the release of acetylcholine. So does that mean the vagal afferent that's innervating the small intestine takes up CCK and goes, or just uh, stimulates it? Just receptors? stimulates it via the bloodstream through receptors. Yeah. So I think it could be either. No, in biology, it's probably both to some degree. But yeah. And so a combination of CCK and the nerve innervation that we spoke about, Yep. parasympathetic, Correct. would cause a contraction of the gallbladder because the gallbladder is in a way kind of a, uh, a muscular bag. Um, <laughs> Which again is what Matt calls me. Um, and the sphincters to, to, to relax. Yes. Okay. Which will then allow the, the bile to, mm. en- to enter the second slash third part of the duodenum. So that's a good point. So the important role of the vagus nerve is the release of acetylcholine for contraction. So acetylcholine tells muscle to contract. Right? Do you reckon but, the um, if you put fatty food into your mouth, it could know to stimulate the gallbladder before it gets totally, totally. So could it know of what you're eating at that level? I think so. Or would it be kind of cognition? So you you're thinking, you kind of know both. I would say it's both. But then again, it's biology. I'm probably wrong. Or do you think just putting a um, a food stimulus in your mouth, full stop, would cause the gallbladder to start to contract a bit. I think that as well. Okay. Yeah, I think all, all of the above. I think because you've got, you know, a neurological, uh, sorry, psychological components to ingestion and digestion, uh, I think you would be stimulating the gallbladder to at least prepare itself because the vagal efferents release acetylcholine for contraction, but the vagal efferents that innovate the sphincter of OD release nitric oxide for relaxation. Really? Yeah, and that happens. I mean, oh, that makes sense. And that's the mechanism of peristalsis, right? Yeah. Is that you've got these um, intrinsic little um, neuronal systems within the um, uh, muscular mucosa, mucosa muscularis 
of the intestines, which in front release nitric oxide to relax the smooth muscle, but behind release acetylcholine to contract it and continually do this all the way through. And that's how peristalsis occurs. That's cool. To relax in front, contract it behind. So here's one for you then. So mm. if your bile gets put into your duodenum yeah. at the second, third uh, portion of your duodenum, okay. how do you vomit out bile? Well, I would assume that the retroperistalsis that occurs due to vomiting. So is that still nitric oxide? Um, yeah, it's probably reversed, right? It's peristalsis in the opposing. So maybe there's other intrinsic uh, motor systems that result in nitric oxide being behind an acetylcholine in front. Oh, yeah. That's cool. Right? And then it goes back and through your pylorus into your stomach. Correct. And then from your stomach... At your esophagus. And that's the yellow green. And onto stuff. the podcasting table. All right. So cool. Yeah, okay. Now I think we need to probably finalize with some gallbladder based diseases. And we'll Wait. Oh. I just want to put in the animals. <gasps> Go on. So um, let's stick with the vertebrates. Do all vertebrates have bile? Ha- okay. So do all verte- vertebrates produce bile? Yeah. Uh, I'd say to some degree, yeah. Invariably, yes. Invariably, yes. Yes. So not variably, invariably. Correct. It's probably an exception. Um, now, when you go into the higher ones, when you look at carnivores, pretty yeah. much every single carnivore will have a gallbladder. Yep. I think except whales. Really? Yep. Now, do we know why? Well, it, it seems that the way that the bile is produced and stored is dependent upon a few things. The rate of secretion the feeding patterns of the animal right. and the fat content of what they eat. Right. And based on those three variables will determine whether the animal will have a gallbladder or not. So if you're an animal that probably eats uh, a higher fat content, mm. you'll need more bile. And if you have probably more intermittent feeding patterns, you would want to store it for the patterns then when you kind of gorge your food. So if you're a, a, a deer grazing on grass consistently throughout the day, you're one, neither ingesting much fat, mm. and two, there's no sort of break in your yeah. digestive processes. So you just want it continuous. So there's probably no gallbladder. Correct. Gotcha. But if you are eating in periodic times, yeah. like humans, yeah, particularly, periodically. particularly humans back in the caveman days, if oh, you, when's if that? You, if you remember back to the, uh, those days, yeah, um, we used to, you know, I grew up in a cave, so it was only about twenty <laughs> twenty five years ago. We used to fast for like a couple of days, not on purpose, just because there was no food, probably. Uh, and then you come across a, a, I don't know, a death. And a, a, you don't a, think you don't think they're part of like CrossFit and they like to do intermittent fasting and balance on medicine do, balls. Do CrossFit do the fasting? I don't know. Okay, um, so then you'd need that's more paleo. Yeah, so then you need which is cavemen. Um, there you go. Then you come across a, I don't know, a death of an animal or a kill or something, and you're like, oh my god, here's a delicious mammoth, and let's just go nuts with a heap heap of meat and fat. Yeah, so we need a lot of bile quickly. So your gallbladder, there it is, stored S- for you. Squirty squirt. Finally, interestingly, the humans are, I think you said it earlier, do a really good job of concentrating it as Thanks. well. So we're one of the best animals at doing that. There you go. Congratulations, everyone. You're really good I at had concentrating it, I had bile. it 10 times, but you said 20 to 30. So Yeah, up to 20, up to, 20 to 30. One yeah. final point, and then yeah. we'll leave the animals, right, okay. is there's one type of animal, the bear, 
yeah. that produces a type of constituent in the bile yep. called ursodeoxycholic acid, which you spoke about, just deoxycholic acid. Yep. Acid. Um, they produce high amounts of urso. You know, humans do as well. Not to their level. No, but we also produce it to a very small... So the main ones we produce, like I said, are cholic acid and, and kinodeoxycholic acid. But we also produce a small amount of ursodeoxycholic acid. And urso means bear. Okay. So, and it seems that this particular product is good at stopping gallstones forming, but also liver injury. Do you reckon that's because... When bears hibernate, they're so because because we, we're just about to talk about gallstones, right? That's a great and and one of the ways that gallstones are produced is through stasis, yeah. when the bile isn't secreted and just sits in the gallbladder. And maybe bears have evolved this because in hibernation, love they're, it. They're not releasing that's any bile. Why, that's why you earn the big bucks. Well, <laughs> okay, let's compare salaries. But they they but they do. Is that true? Like, have you read that? Or am no, I, no making... I, I, I love the, the thinking, though. Oh, thank you. But they did extract, well, they do extract that, um, I guess you'd say, inhumanely in some, some parts of the world where they put like a cannula into the bear's gallbladder. Gross. And just pull it out. Gross. For medicinal reasons. But from a pharmacological point of view, they've refined this. And I think this particular um, acid can be used in medicines to stop or break up gallstones. There you go. So maybe my hypothesis has some feet to it. Mm. All right. Or legs to it. So let's now talk about gallstones. Let's finish on gallstones. Great idea. You you start. Well, there's two types. Right. Uh, by far, the majority is cholesterol-based gallstones. Yep. And the less abundant type is... Um, Pigment. Pigmented. Which are usually Billy Rubin based? Yeah. All right. And they're, so they're either black or brown, those ones. But we'll start with cholesterol. All right. So with your explanation of the bile acids, um, they what are the micelles called? Yeah, that. Okay. <laughs> so if you put more and more cholesterol um, into your biliary tract, yeah. these get more and more saturated with cholesterol. So if you have conditions which cause an imbalance with cholesterol secretion from your liver, the the gallbladder can be kind of super saturated with cholesterol, which um, creates go, nucleation goes pump. beyond the capacity to for those micelles yep. to put cholesterol into it. Yes, great. And so kind of like this is my thought. This may not actually be true. If you had a, I don't know, a beaker of water and you kept on putting salt in it. Perfect and, analogy. And dissolve it. It would yep. dissolve. Yep. But then to a point it's super saturated with salt and then it will come out of solution as Correct. crystals. Yeah. yeah. And this is kind of the cause of cholesterol-based stones. I think that's perfect. That's a so, great analogy. So if you have a combination of your liver is pushing too much cholesterol into the bile. Yeah. Or like you said, the, the gallbladder is not empty in itself. Yeah. The, the not emptying itself, you could think of it like a peanut butter jar. If you just leave it on the shelf for a year, you come back later, what does it look like? The oil's at the top and the hard stuff's down the bottom. Yeah, so it's separated. So similar, yeah. if you yeah. go long periods without um, moving your bile out of your gallbladder, it can separate and that can cause the stones. Right. So this would be conditions like um, fasting. Uh, I'm not sure if there's any other example. Oh, <laughs> spinal cord injury. Oh, yeah, so if yeah, you have yeah. spinal cord injury, you're not innovating your gallbladder through 
nerve nerve impulses, and therefore it's not emptying. Okay, oh, I think that's makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. So that's um, excretion issues, but probably the vast majority of cholesterol-based stones is an imbalance with the cholesterol handling. And the medical term we use for these stones is cholelithiasis, right? Yeah. Right. And so some risk, risk factors for this are the five Fs. All right, everyone, um, if there's children listening, please cover their ears. What are the five Fs? Um, no no order to this. All right. Female. All right. Fat. All right. So obesity. Yep. Um, 40. Yep. That's age. Uh, fertile. All right, that's four. And family history. Five. Yeah. Okay, so you're basically saying that they're risk factors. They're not determinants. But basically, yeah, a, a, a high proportion of women in their forties. So I think who are, ten to fifteen percent of women will get or develop cholesterol-based stones. Now, this does not mean they're symptomatic, right? Correct. It so, just means they have stones, but they may live their whole lives with these stones. Yeah. So approximately twenty percent of the population, at least in Western countries, will have stones. Wow. But eighty percent of those are asymptomatic, so you wouldn't know you had them. Wow, okay. So it would only be an incidental finding. Like if you were to get scanned for something else, they'll go, oh, by the way, you've got a whole lot of stones. 4%. Yeah. 4% will be symptomatic and 16% will be asymptomatic according to your maths. Keep going. All right. What was your next question? Was there one? (laughs) Uh, I I think, uh, so we said we've got the calcium, uh, cholesterol-based stones. Yeah. Um, They're the most common. So females, they create nucleation points if there's too much or they're not getting uh, getting rid of. Uh, they create stones. Oh yeah, that's right. Females. So female. Oh, so so overweight because higher fat ingestion, yeah. right, and higher cholesterol accumulation. Uh, female because of estrogen and yes, estrogen strongly. In- that's strongly based on the estrogen. So estrogen increases the absorptive capacity of cholesterol and also uh, the deposition of cholesterol in the bile. As yeah, well. I think on two accounts. If you were taking a um, contraceptive pill with yep. obviously estrogen in it that will increase the chance, but also pregnancy while you're pregnant would increase the likelihood of cholesterol's handling to be um, out of whack, which could increase a stone formation. So this is both the female and fertile, sort of goes yeah. hand in hand. Yep. 40s just happens to be the age in which the symptoms manifest, Yep. right? Um, Family and history. And family history is a big one, which sort of can potentially negate the female fat and 40 yeah. Fs. So that's where possibly males will come in. Exactly. And another, this is paradoxical, is losing weight rapidly Yeah, could also g- increase your likelihood of a stone. Uh, I mean, that could potentially be due to the fact of increasing bile stasis, right? A lot of people who lose weight stop ingesting a lot of fats. And so what probably happens in the front end is they continue to produce a lot of bile because they're used to it, but then they don't need it. So it stays stored in the gallbladder for probably a larger amount of time yeah. and potentially results in an accumulation of the cholesterol. And so a population here would could possibly be people who just had sleeve therapy or yes. intervention, like a stomach reduction. Gastric sleeve, yeah. yeah. That's a good point. Now, the less common stones and then we can talk about whether where they can lodge and so forth but let's i think you're happy to move to the pigmented stones yeah just so you know with the cholesterol you probably won't see them with an x-ray because they don't have much calcium in it yeah so how do you view them ultrasound ultrasound ct can be used um yeah 
So moving to the second one. Have you so, heard of ERCP? Uh, which is one way of identifying whether the stones are in a tube. So ERCP is endoscopic retrograde cholangiopancreatography. And do you do that with an MRI? Not sure. I think, yeah, I think there's a pigment associated with it, but I think you, you put it into, you go into the um, esophagus. And, and you then, go all the way down. All the way down then into the ducts and have a look, see whether there's any um, bile, like, bile duct stones. So it's kind of like a, a coronary angiogram, but for the biliary tree. Yeah, yeah. All right, so the bilirubin or pigmented stones? Yeah, so this is basically an imbalance with bilirubin's processing through the liver. Yeah. So when your red blood cells are broken down, um, which happens all the time, I think 1% of your red blood cells are gotten rid of every day. Yeah, well, every their lifespan is 120 days. So there's going to be a proportion every day that's So you make, you're killing a whole lot and making a whole lot every day. And so the breakdown product of the red blood cells is you want to recycle most of it. Um, you want to recycle the iron. You want to recycle the protein part, the globulin part. But the heme part, it's uh, water insoluble or, or fat soluble. Yep. And so the liver modifies it or conjugates it to be able to get rid of. And so it puts a uh, glucuronic acid to it, which is just a water soluble part to it, right? Yep. And then this gets dumped off into your bile. I'm not sure what percentage. Maybe one about 1% of your bile is bilirubin, conjugated bilirubin. Yeah. But this is interesting. All bilirubin-based stones is actually based on unconjugated bilirubin. So why is that? Well, in your gallbladder, somehow, which they don't ex- exactly know, it goes back to becoming unconjugated. So maybe I think bacteria. No, it's no, not really. That's going to be the brown ones. Ah, some reason the black ones. We're not sure why. We're not even sure if it's based on enzymes. Really, it just happens. Because I was under the impression that yeah, the pigmented stones had to do with bacterial modification. That's the brown ones. Ah, but the black ones are from unconjugated bilirubin. Wow. So because it's a, such a small proportion of conjugated turns into unconjugated. The only way you can get black stones is to have a whole lot of bilirubin getting put in. So this is, a, like you said, a mishandling of bilirubin maybe. Oh, it's actually too much. So if you have excessive amounts of red blood cell destruction, then the liver is processing a lot of bilirubin and conjugating it, and then therefore you have more unconjugated bilirubin, yeah. and therefore the stones start to form. Wow. And these because are kind of uh, added with calcium and bicarbonate so calcium carbonate jumps on with the bilirubin or the unconjugated bilirubin and this now makes it radio graphic opaque is that right it's opaque so the yeah. so now you can see it on an x-ray yeah oh wow all right so they're the two different types yep now the brown ones are more common no i think the black ones are. oh okay so we've got cholesterol based brown ones and black ones which are bilirubin based Conjugated or unconjugated? So the black and brown are still the pigmented type. All right. But the brown is formed by bacteria. So when you have an infection along or bacteria growth along the biliary tract, this could cause a change in the bilirubin, which could cause stones. Gotcha. Now, what if these stones start to uh, form in the gallbladder, but then they start to move out of the gallbladder or try to move out of the gallbladder and they block the cystic duct? From the gallbladder. 
Now, they don't block the other ducts. They don't block the ducts coming from the liver. They don't block the duct coming from the pancreas, but just the gallbladder. What happens? Or what oh, so can potentially happen? It can't empty. Is that what you mean? Correct. Well, I'll imagine the um, it will become painful uh, it because it can't empty itself. Yeah. Possibly the gallbladder will increase in size. That being inflamed. So that's called cholecystitis. Yeah. If it then jumps into the biliary tree at some point and blocks the tree and results in inflammation of the biliary tree, that's called cholangitis. It's another name. Yeah. So cholangitis inflammation of the biliary tree and cholecystitis inflammation of the gallbladder itself. But it can block at any different part, really. Mm. And you know, it can block um, the common bile duct to stop the liver from releasing its products. And one of the products that the liver produce, uh, releases, which is what you just spoke about, is <clears throat> the bilirubin. And if that doesn't get released to go into the bile, it accumulates in the liver and then gets redistributed. And what's what happens then? Then you go the same color as bilirubin is, which is yellow. Wow. And that's jaundice. That's jaundice. Okay. So you're saying that gallstones could result in jaundice. Yeah. As a, okay. And just it, so you're there, just while you're there, um, jaundice is a non-specific... Um, finding so you wouldn't know if there's a problem with the liver mm. you wouldn't know if you've got excessive red blood cell destruction or whether you've got a problem with the way that the bile is excreted so you'd have to go and look at then the bilirubin in the blood whether it's conjugated or unconjugated and it will tell you if it's a problem with the liver or a problem with it being excreted perfect so you can get inflammation in the gallbladder. You can get issues with the liver if it's blocked. You can even, if it, even if it's a little bit downstream, it can block the pancreas from releasing its components and get acute pancreatitis. Oh, yeah. Also known as biliary pancreatitis. So that was in the main pancreatic duct. Yes. Bl- blocks it, that. Even if it's blocked a little bit higher up, it can result in acute biliary pancreatitis. Okay. So biliary pancreatitis is referring to the fact that there's something wrong with the biliary system that's resulting in pancreatitis and often it's called Is this painful? Uh, yes. So for 20% of those people with symptoms, yeah. what kind of pain? I don't know. What kind of pain could they have? Well, I think it comes on after eating, Yep. particularly with a fatty meal. Makes sense. And it would last for potentially a couple of hours post-meal. Wow. So if you're getting pain around eating... Where would this pain be? Well... Upper w- right? Where is the... Um, Pancreas? A- afferent that's leaving the, the gallbladder. It's going into your thoracic region. Yeah. So I think around T7, T9, I think. So a diaphragmatic pain? Yeah, kind of like an area around your epigastric region, maybe the right quadrant pain. But but like we spoke about at the start, it can also go up to your scapula or your shoulder if it's it's going back in the the phrenic dermatome. So the most common cause of... of, um, Acute pancreatitis is probably gallstones, or one of the most common causes, I should say, um, biliary pancreatitis. So a couple of things to finish on, just as yeah. interesting facts. Uh, the biggest gallbladder in history, yeah, or that, that I could find, um, was a lady in India who had a, a small stone that blocked her gallbladder neck, right, and as a result, her gallbladder became thirty centimeters in length. Ah, oh, how do you leave it? until it's 30 centimetres. There would be a hell of a protrusion. Yeah, it went all the way down to a right iliac fossa. Isn't that crazy? That's gross. And then the most stones are approximately 20,000. 
Now, I assume they're not golf ball size. No, they're probably just sludgy sand. <sighs> a lot so, of people will, in the early form, early stages, have more of a sludge than a stone. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, you can have one big stone, size of golf ball, or you can have multiple little granular stones. And depending on which doesn't necessarily dictate the amount of pain that you're in because the no. pain is determined by the contraction of the smooth muscle around the stone. Yeah. So probably location and timing is more important when it comes to the pain. Mm. Are we done, Matty? I think that's pretty extensive. I think we did a good job. Yeah. I don't think you'll find a uh, an outline of the gallbladder as extensive as what we've done here. So please tell your friends to listen to Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's medical podcast. We also have a YouTube channel, which is Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's YouTube channel. Look us up. We've got hundreds of videos there for you that go through topics just like this. You can find us on Instagram at Dr. Mike Todorovic, D-R-M-I-K-E-T-O-D-O-R-O-V-I-C. Or you can follow us on Facebook at Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast, I think it is on Facebook. And uh, you can just send us an email, gubiosciences at gmail.com. We love receiving emails from people. and Mike loves fan mail. Love it. I've never received one yet, <laughs> but it would be nice. All right, guys. Thanks, Matty. Bye. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 